At Midway USA, we know the AR-15 is one of the most popular rifles in modern American history. Known for its modularity and widespread use, it's often considered essential to any gun collection. The essential things you need to run an AR-15 are usually always in stock during shortages, things like magazines and 5.56 ammo. Whether you're looking to buy a new AR-15 or buy parts for your modern sporting rifle, log on and for just about everything for the outdoors, shop MidwayUSA.com. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. I'm April Vokey, and you are listening to Anchored, my chance to speak with some of the most influential people involved in the outdoors today. Join me as I travel to sit face-to-face with my guests in their own homes to learn more about their careers, opinions, history, relationships, and life both indoors and out. This episode of Anchored is made possible by HMH Vices. Since 1975, HMH Vices have been giving tires dependable service and quality. Made in Maine, USA, all HMH Vices and tools are guaranteed for life. The HMH Vice has an ultra-smooth 360-degree rotary action and an exclusive quick-change jaw feature that allows you to tie from size 32 to 6 aught. In 1992, HMH was instrumental in popularizing tube flies with their tube fly tool. This tool fits into any vise, making it easy for tires to tie on tubes with only a minimal investment. HMH offers a complete selection of fly tying tubes, including aluminum, copper, poly, and rigid tubes for any species, water depth, or temperature. Their tube converter tool converts an HMH vise into an incredible inline rotary tube vise. With a vise for all budgets and tying needs, you're bound to find something at www.hmhvices.com. Former Olympic downhill skier Andy Mill is widely regarded as one of the best tarpon fly fishermen in the world. Looking at the amount of tournament wins he has under his belt, it's easy to see why. In this episode of Anchored, I sit down with Andy in his first ever podcast to discuss tarpon fishing, drag settings, and bow hunting. Born in Fort Collins, Colorado, and at a very young age, my family moved to Laramie, Wyoming. And there, oh, when I was about six, I would say, my, you know, my father and I, my mom probably threw my dad out of the house, like, get out of here for the day, you know. <laughs> yeah. So we went up into the mountains and to Medicine Bow Ski Area and saw the ski area. Uh, we immediately went downtown and got some skis and started skiing. And then the following year, my father had a, a job opportunity in Aspen. So the doing? family moved to Aspen. He was in the lumber business. Okay. So when we moved to Aspen, that was my connection to skiing, and I became a skier. Did your parents do a lot of skiing? You know, it was just part of what you do when you're in Aspen. Okay. And at a very young age, I knew I was connected to skiing and racing. And then I ended up skiing for 12 years with the U.S. ski team and skied in two Olympics and two world championships. And then I got into fishing about 30 years ago. Okay, so the family didn't get you into fishing. No, my roots are as much fishing as they are skiing in that I was taught how to fly cast by Ernie Schwiebert, the great Ernie Schwiebert. He was in town, you know, doing clinics and I was riding my bike across near the park and I saw this fly line arcing across the space and I just this, this huge gravitational pull and all of a sudden I was over there and he taught me how to fly cast and then Chuck Fothergill he was he's really pretty famous in the world of nymphing he taught me how to tie flies when I was about 11 so I tied flies for the local stores for my allowance wait how old are you with the Ernie Schwebert running Probably about eight, eight or nine. Oh, so okay and then, so and then really early 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 and then uh I would say maybe about 10 or 12 years later, he and I went to Alaska together. And he would come into Aspen and sleep on my couch. We would go up the frying pan, and I had a little Vega. And he would tie flies on the hood of my Vega and wade them out to the river. And I'm out there trying to catch fish with Ernie Schwieber tying flies for me on the hood of my Vega. That is incredible. How insane is that? (laughs) 
So growing up, did you constantly battle with yourself about do I ski or fish, or did the seasons conflict? It was easy because the seasons were different. It was was awesome growing up in Aspen, small little ski town. I had a baseball mitt on my bike, and I'd go to the river in the morning, and I'd fish till you know noon or one then go to baseball practice and i'd go back to the river with a couple peanut butter and jelly sandwiches and come home for leftovers late you know after the evening hatch once it started getting cold you know i was up there ripping around the mountain yeah i guess if the seasons work with each other you were busy all year round then yeah did you have any reason to leave or could you stay in colorado the whole time there was no real reason reason to leave until i was like six or actually probably about 13 12 13 i started traveling in the nation. Okay. And you said that you did it for tw- how many years? 12 years? I skied with the Olympic team for 12 years. Okay. When did that start in your timeline? Um, well, I was, I was named to the U.S. Uh, ski team, the talent squad, if you will, when I was 16. Mm. So they gave you a uniform. You had to pay for your own training, but you had some coaches and you can get into the bigger events. And you had this patch and this this jacket. And now all of a sudden your feathers are all poked out because you're a member of the ski team. I mean, it's, it's the beginning of a big dream coming true. Right. But I guess you have to work up to that. So at 12, 13. Yeah, and then you start breaking your legs and doing all that stuff. And I read that, and we'll get there, but I read that you've had... I mean, umpteen breaks in your body. Oh, yeah. I just had my back fused in February. Oh, my God. How old are you now, if I can ask? 65. Are you really feeling it? Uh, Not now, because my back's better. But I could not play golf for the last four or five years without pain medication. Uh, Last year, elk hunting, my back was so bad, I was throwing up. And we were, my son and I, we were about an hour and a half away from these animals, and we were leaving like at 4.30 in the morning to hike to them. And hiking in in the morning in the dark, I was throwing up. My back was so bad. Oh, no. And we're sleeping on the ground. It's snowing. We're up there for 14 days. And I, it was, it had changed my life. So in February, I had my back fused, and I was playing golf within, I would say, 12 weeks, you know, two and a half months or so. Yeah. And I've been in the high country hiking four and five hours and six hours recently. And I have, I'm zero pain. Zero, I am completely pain-free. You don't have any problem with your motion or your mobility at all? I'm a little bit stiff, but that's not bad. Okay. I'll take that over over pain. Uh, yeah, yeah, especially in your back. They want to fuse my foot after my foot injury. And I just, I can't bring myself to do it because there's so many bones in that foot. You know, you need, the, you really need to be able to have that flex. Well, it just depends on what you're, what you're capable of living with as far as the pain level. I'm capable of If it's a life-changing thing, yeah. you can no longer hunt and fish and do and chase your kids. and It's like you've got to make that move. Yeah, I guess you have to weigh it out. Well, let's bring you back to 12-13. They're obviously think, thinking that you're talented enough to be on the Olympic team. So they're start, is it your coaches that are starting well, to I, bring you around the world? You know, no, just you know, at that age you have no money. So you're trying to, you know, your parents are working double duty trying to pay for skis that you're breaking every week. Yeah. You know, you're in a station wagon chucking around the country and then when i was 19 i skied for uh, robert redford we were called the sundance kids right after redford did the movie downhill racer he saw the need to help junior athletes that, that were just prior making the ski team okay so he had bought sundance and so we went over and skied for redford under the umbrella of the Sundance kids. Mm. And for fall training, we showed up and they handed us a bunch of chainsaws and we went up and cut a bunch of ski trails for them. Oh, that's fantastic. That was our training. So you didn't come from like money. Your parents, you come from a pretty humble beginning. Yes. Oh, they must have been so proud of you. Yeah, I mean, I I would think. What was it like going to the Olympics? Was there just so much pressure? It's something that you've been dreaming about your entire life. So when you're walking into the opening ceremonies, and remember... There are only a limited number of athletes that can ski in the Olympics. So in the men's downhill, which I participated in, there are only four skiers from this country. So that's a very selected few. So just to know that you're representing your country and there are only just a handful of you, you know, there's a lot of satisfaction in just having made it. Mm -hmm. But what was interesting in the 76 Olympics, I got fifth in the pre-Olympics. So it was a great downhill. And in 76, there was no snow in Europe. So they had to helicopter all the snow off the Brenner Pass. And they hand-packed it onto the downhill. Then the Army sprayed it with water and side-slipped it. So it was literally uh, a ribbon of ice from start to finish. In the first training run, uh, there was a big off-camber left-hand turn. There were about four of us in the first 15 that went into the trees. And I had like a boot-top injury so bad that I couldn't walk. So I was on crutches the whole week. And so I missed the—you had to have— 
five training runs at that time. I missed three training runs. I'd go up and inspect the downhill on one ski, watching everybody else train. And the next to the last training run, I went out of the starting gate on one ski. I would go up on one ski, and and, uh, and the other foot was in an after ski boot. So I'd just slide down and watch everybody train because mm-hmm. I, I couldn't walk. Right. I couldn't ski. So on the last training run, I told the coaches, if I can't see the finish gate, maybe we should run somebody else an alternate. So I buried my foot in the snow to the point that I, I couldn't feel it, froze it. Threw on my ski boot and took off and got ninth, and the next day I got sixth. What? Yeah, I missed a bronze medal by three tenths. <laughs> Who are you? So, well, I, I, yeah, sometimes I ask myself, you know, God, what kind of a crazy life has this been, you know, because it goes all over the place. Yeah. And then about 30 years ago, I, um, I, I left the ski world and got into the fishing world. Why did you leave the ski world and go into the fishing world? I was really, well, I had an opportunity to, to host a fishing show. Uh, it was originally called Versus, the channel. Mm-hmm. And so they originally asked me, I did a couple specials. They liked the stuff that we did, and they wanted me to do you know, a number of shows over the next four years. And I was so busy with the ski world because I was still traveling, doing broadcast work for the Olympics. Uh, I did 92 Olympics in 94 in Lillehammer. And I had a ski show at the time, so I was really busy. I said, I'm not going to, I can't just do everything. I have a family too. So I was ready for a career change. So I said, if you match my, my revenue that I'm making as a skier and give me a four-year contract, I'll do it. And I walked away from skiing. Okay, now you're not going to get out of your background and your timeline that easy. Let's bring you right on back. Were you still fishing while you were training for the Olympics, or was it just too time consuming? Yeah, no, you can fish, but I wasn't traveling. You know, I didn't know anything about saltwater fish. I remember mm. watching Flip Pout and uh, and and his show every Sunday. You know, Walker's K Chronicles. I think he brought really an, an enormous audience to to the game, mm-hmm. and I was one of those people out there going, "Oh my God, look at this tarpon and bonefish and perman!" Oh. I, you know, I only knew my backyard, yeah. but I was really passionate about my backyard. I mean, I love fishing as much as I love skiing. Yeah, and, and you still do, obviously. Yeah, absolutely. But the, we were just speaking earlier, and now my passion has grown to you know hunting elk with bow and arrows. Um, Isn't it funny how that happens? <laughs> I know. Um, but you just don't know where you're going to go until you're exposed to, to that new subject, and all of a sudden it grabs your core. And you're, you're whisked away, you yeah. know, to a whole new world. Yep, and we're going to get into that because that's really interesting to me that you bow hunt. Yeah, it's, um, I was introduced uh, to it about 10 years ago. And once you see the animal, you, you, you learn how to connect with the animal mm-hmm. and speak with the animal. And you pull them in and then you harvest them from 5 to 40 yards yeah. and they're 800 pounds and they really taste good. <laughs> it's so good. It's like I'm all over that. And I think that when, one of the interesting aspects of tarpon fishing is that you can communicate to, with that fish with your fly. If you really know the fish, you talk to the fish with your fly. So obviously it's hunting. It's not it casting and retrieving. Yeah. You see the fish, now you talk to the fish with your fly. And that elk hunting, which is that extended uh, dimension of communicating with an animal. Now you're vocalizing how you're feeling and, and what you want that animal to understand. Yeah, you know, obviously I understand communicating to the animal because I hunt in the rut, so I'm used to calling in deer, right. stag, whatever. But I never thought about it like that with, with the fly. Tell me how you got into saltwater fishing. Well, um, I was on the show with John Barrett, Fly Fishing the World. And we went to Belize. Okay, now why were you on his show? He invited me just to come down, probably because I was married to somebody famous and needed a famous person on the show, and he wanted to get my wife on, you know, down there and to get her. I was tagging along. Okay, but you you, know? you weren't a famous angler at this point. <laughs> no, you um, you were a famous. I was skier. famous a skier, but not great famous. But she was famous. Married and he thought, to a Here's famous a, tennis yeah, player. Yeah, so he thought this would be a great connection. Okay, you know, so we went down and I saw a tarpon. For the first time, I saw a tarpon bite my fly, and at that point, I thought, "Oh my God, my life has just changed." <laughs> right. And it was almost as literal as that. Were you talented on the boat? Yeah, I mean, I could always cast well, but when you compare what I was like then and now, and the average fisherman in the salt, yeah, I think I was okay because I had a great mentor right after that. But at least once you can cast, you have access to growth. Yeah. If you can't put the fly where you need it to get. 
you ha- you're, there's no chance. You're pretty pretty flat growing curve. But Perry Spear was my mentor. I fished with him for about seven years, and he basically groomed me for tournament fishing. And this was in the Keys? In the Keys. So once I saw tarpon in Belize, I was living in Aspen at the time, but we were also commuting back to South Florida because Chrissy's family is there. And we, hadn't, we didn't have kids at the time. But once I saw the tarpon in Belize, when I was in Florida, I started seeking out Florida guides. I wanted to see what this tarpon thing was all about. And I called Bob Branham. I fished with him a little bit. Then Harry Spear, I got connected with Harry. And he and um, Steve Huff had won almost all the tournaments, the fly tournaments in the Florida Keys for a right. number, like 20 years. So you couldn't find a better mentor. And he mentored me for about seven years. How many days a week were you uh, fishing I, with him? I was fishing with him about 40 days a year. Okay, so it's not like you were going in for one week no, a year. No, 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 this was serious. I figured that over the last 30-some years, I've spent over a million dollars on guides. No kidding. I mean, lucky me to be able to do that. But, <laughs> wow. But, you know, you learn through people. And right. my success is based on not only my ability, but all the great people that you fished with, all the tournaments that you win. It's a team thing. you got somebody pushing the boat, and you got somebody catching the fish. Yeah, it's a group effort. Yes, and uh, you take a little bit from everybody. But I think when you get really good, you can take all you can from your coach. But then you as an athlete, you've got, you've got to be able to step outside of that window and fish differently and fish on your own and fish by your own, with your own instincts. Because they can say one thing, but you've got to not only understand what they're saying, but you have to understand a different perspective. The, the more you fish and the broader your spectrum becomes, the better of an angler you can become. For sure. But if you only fish through the words of your guide, you're limited. Yeah, well, I guess it's kind of like training for skiing, right? Like your coach can only take you so far right. until it's on, on you. Right, because when, if you're, you know, if you get the ski tipped up on edge going 80 miles an hour going around that corner, yeah, he can see something. And coaches are, are really, really, really important with their eye. Like, let's just say, how do you coach Tiger Woods? How do you coach Tiger right. Woods? You've got to be able to think outside the box and beyond, but yet Tiger was thinking even in a box further than than his coach's boxes. How much of, of it is, you know, psychological? How much of it is the coach trying to figure out what's going on in your brain rather than your I, You body? know, I think golf is the most difficult game played. I love golf. I'm a passionate golfer. I had a par three in my backyard. I mean, I practice two to five hours a day and I'm crazy about it. And what I love about golf is that mental war that takes place between your mind and your body Mm -hmm. because you know how to hit a shot. And then now it's about, you know, making your body do what your mind wants it to do. And there's always a contrast between are you comfortable or is your tempo okay? You get in a tournament, now you get a little bit excited. How well can you calm your nerves, your mind, and your body and find that connection? And that's what fascinates me about golf. You know, but golf is a man-made sport. Fishing is is a lot more natural. It's instinctive, right? Oh, sure. Do you feel that you still get into your brain like that while you're fishing, or do you just let instincts kick in? Oh, you, you got to fish by the seat of your pants for sure. Even you know a lot of stuff and you know what you think is going to happen. All of a sudden, something changes, and now you have to know what that change is without really knowing what that change is. Uh, and that's why you don't learn this stuff unless you live it, unless you live in front of the fish and live on that river like you. You know, you know what's happening there even though you don't see it. Yeah. You know when you get a certain drift and you're drifting the fly. You know when that tug is going to take place because you've been there a gazillion times. Right. You know the river. And if there is a fish there, you know it's going to bite. For the most part. I guess when you're living on a river, you know the water levels. You know the conditions. You, You know the dynamics of the magic. But still, you... Ad lib all the time. Yeah, for sure. So your first year in Florida, then those forty days, were you coming in and out, or were you there for forty days straight? Uh, I was. We were coming in and out because we were fluctuating between my ski work and Chrissy's tennis work. You know, she was doing. She was still traveling and, and playing for about a year and a half. So I was going to her tournaments, and then on the side, I was going over to the skiing events that I was covering. You know, for the networks. Now, when you were going to Florida, what months were your favorite time? Well, now, you know, I've been, I've had like 15 operations, so I don't ski a whole lot anymore. 
not that I hurt, but I'm kind of over frostbitten toes and scraping mm. ice off the windows and makes me sound like a pussy, but I've been... T- no, well, what <laughs> breaks have you had? I've read, I read that you've broken everything. Oh, God, I've had... And, um, in one fall in 81 that ended my career, I broke my neck and my back. I broke my right leg and tore all the ligaments in my right knee in one fall. In one fall? In one fall. I've had uh, 12 knee operations. I've got to replace left knee. I just had my back fused. I've had three broken legs, a broken ankle, wrist operation, hand operations. So I've, I've heard a lot. No wonder why you want to get out of... But you know what? It's more that I can still rip. I can go up and ski. I have no doubt. Wind. You know what? And I, I'm <laughs> but not, you're still in really good shape. I, I, I stay fit. It's just that I don't need another run down Spar Gulch. I've been skiing down Spar Gulch since, I've, you know, since 1960. You know, and it's really fun when I get out there and march for a couple of hours, and then I usually find myself gravitating to the river in the afternoon. Yeah. You know, so I, I still love skiing, but it's got to be on my terms. And thank God I don't have to, like, live up there all winter and work in the snow. So I usually head back to um, Florida, say May uh, or actually o- mid-October, once the weather starts to get bad. And then I've got a great golf club I'm a member of, about 10 minutes from my house. I spend a lot of time there. And then... Uh, in February, when the sharks, the black tip spinner sharks, start spawning, I catch them and we test. I test all the hardy rods on these spinner sharks. Oh, that's how you do it. Because they're all about 90 pounds and they really rip. They jump, they spin, and they take off and they want to break and kill everything. And we chum them up and catch them on fly rods. And on a good day, you can hook. You know, twenty, twenty-five of these of these monsters. Not monsters in size because they're only about ninety pounds, but they're just they. You know, they got attitude. We use really heavy tackle, and I try to catch these fish in like five minutes. And then in doing so, you have your fly, you have your wire, and then it's straight sixty to eighty to your fly line, which is not IGFA legal, obviously. Yeah. But I'm not trying to. F- Fish IGFA legal. I'm trying to break in rods or see if rods, rods will break and reels will break, and that's how we test the stuff. Because you can't, you cannot test product on tarpon. Why? How many tarpon are you going to catch in a year? Not for me, not that many. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. For they're, you, they're I hard, don't know, but they're hard. Yeah. So you want to go and and test a product on a fish that is actually a fish. And that's going to rip around, not lemon sharks that are laying around, and, you know, like like trying to catch a, a heavy pillow, right. <laughs> but something that's going to rip, and you and you can get out there and, um, and and hook a bunch of animals and see what's going to happen with the product. And you also here too, you learn how to catch fish. Most people, and I don't see very many people teach and coach the dynamics of pulling on a fish. Mm. How do you actually lift a fish? And if I tie a 12-pound barbell under a table with a pulley and stand back, or have anybody, most, most people stand back and say, okay, you pull, because most people fish depending on what you're fishing for, 12-pound test, 10-pound tw- test, 16 for tarpon, you know, maybe, maybe 20. A lot of people will pull, you know, tie on 30, you know, outside of the confines of IGFA, but they're never going to pull more than probably 14. 12 pounds of pressure is almost impossible to pick up off the floor with your fly rod unless you do it correctly. And what is, how is it correctly? Well, you need to have a relatively straight rod, a slight bend. You lean back and you lift with your legs. Most people want to lift with their arms. But if I, if you and I, if I want to pull you over or you pull me over and we go to shake hands, you're not going to bend at the elbow and try to lift you across the room. No. You're going to lean back and lift with your legs. For sure. That's exactly how you fight fish. Now, how did you learn all this? Like if I look at, at your beginnings in tarpon fishing, obviously you're learning through Harry and you're learning through the guys, but were you like, were you on a mission to be a tournament angler or were you just out there trying to learn for yourself? Once I got into tournaments, I, I really, it, you know, it was um, interesting in this regard. I was not the skier I wanted to be, even though I got sixth in the Olympics and I was the national champion. I had aspirations of winning everything at the at the highest level. I wanted to win Olympic gold medals. I wanted to be a dominator, but I didn't have the mental stability structure, not stability. It makes me sound like I'm kind of like sick or something, but <laughs> I, I didn't have, I wasn't smart enough and I didn't have, I didn't have the great mentors to help me. And that was a time in this country that everything was kind of, you know, anti everything. It was that post Vietnam. Everybody had long hair. We were drinking beer and we we're on ski team traveling internationally. I was not a professional athlete. 
Right. Is this when they tried to get you to cut your hair and you permed it instead? Yeah. Like that yeah. just speaks volumes to me about who you are. Yeah, it's, it's amazing. Like, it's like I'm not, that's you know that's you know, downhill skiers kind of like have that that kind of spirit where they would say no and they're going to go try to you know burn the house down. And <laughs> I was like one it. of those guys. But when I became a fisherman, I I was not. It gave me basically I thought a second chance. And once I understood what. What is the Gold Cup? It's the biggest tarpon tournament in the world. It's a five-day tournament. The Golden Fly, the Holly, the Bonefish tournaments. It was a huge presence in the Keys. And I thought, you know what? This is my shot. And I got to say... what, though? Like being the best at yes, fame? Yes, yes. No, not at fame. I wanted to win. Okay. And I was possessed. And I did not sleep for 10 years, 12 years. I lost the Gold Cup by eight ounces one year. Oh. By five points. I didn't sleep for two years until we won. So you're talking about how did I learn how to pull on fish? Well, what it was is, you know, if you take a boga grip and you tie it on into your, you know, your leader and you stand back and you bend the rod and you have to have somebody tell you how much resistance you're pulling. Well, I did that. And people get tired of hanging on to scales. So I got a chatillion. And it's got a red knob that slides with the resistance level. And I tied it to the front door of my house. And in the evenings, you know, when we after dinner stuff, I would pull on my front door and go back and forth. But now i got to go back and forth to see how much resistance I've pulled. So I thought, I need to find a definitive number where I can do this by myself and go out into the garage and pull for hours. So what I did is I went to the hardware store and got a pulley. And I put the butt section of my leader through the pulley, and I would tie it to a 12-pound barbell. Okay. And I thought, now, if I can put 12 pounds of resistance on a fish, I still have about four pounds of gray before that tippet's going to break. So tarpon tournaments, you have 16-pound test tippet. I thought, if I can pull 12, I'll have enough gray, you know, to make a mistake and still get away with it, and that fish is going to come to the boat. So I started focusing on a 12-pound resistance for tarpon fishing. And then when I started record fish, let's just say if you want to catch a world record on six-pound test, you want to be able to pull four or five, five pounds of resistance. Do you know what four or five pounds of resistance is? No. Nobody knows unless you pull four or five pounds on the end of your rod. So you're practicing so I'm that studying. you know what it feels like. I know what it feels like. I know what uh, you get muscle memory. In your hands, you know how the rod bends. You know how it feels. So I caught an 82-pound tarpon in 27 minutes once. We were trying to catch the world record six-pound tarpon. So I tied a it was six-pound test, so I tied a five-pound barbell to the end of the pulley. And I and on a nine weight rod, and I just started pulling five pounds. So once that tarpon was hooked and stopped jumping, I started pulling five pounds. I'd pull, pull, pull. The fish would stop. I'd pull. He'd go. You let him go. And that's how you learn how to pull. And if a guide says to you on a boat, you need to pull harder. You know how do you pull harder? Because you've already got the rod high. You're bent. Your arms are fatigued. You're shaking. And unless you know that you need to lower your rod, straighten your arms, and lift with your legs. You don't know exactly how to pull harder. So these are the dynamics of fishing that no one has ever taught. Did, did these guys teach you, or was this the sort of thing that you ended up teaching no, them? No, this, this, is, this is all me, you know, being a nutcase trying to win tarpon tournaments. Yeah, it sounds like you were completely obsessed with it. Yes. It's fantastic. I, I, I mean, so much more so that if I had this kind of mindset and focus as an Olympic skier, I might have done a lot better. But I didn't understand but once I came to fishing, I already had the skiing background and being an athlete and not being as successful as I, as I wanted to be as a skier. Now, as a fisherman, I could rectify that and really apply my 100% to figuring out how to do this and win. You know, it's kind of like a dichotomy. Why, how can you have that kind of patience on the bow of a boat when I used to make a living going 100 miles an hour on skis? Right. Well, I was going to ask you about that. Well, it's, it's still, you know, you're hunting now. Yeah. And as you know, when you're walking through the woods, it's not all about killing. It's about it's about the adventure and the chase. Mm-hmm. So fishing became that, and that's what kept me connected to the fish. And that's what kept me connected during those long hours where the fishing was poor. Coming up, Andy and I continue our conversation. 
Again, thank you to HMH Vices for making this episode possible. If you've been hoping to start tying tube flies this winter, HMH has got you covered. The HMH Universal Tube Fly Kit is an easy-to-use system of interchangeable tubes, tools, and techniques that lets you tie any style of floating or sinking tube fly for both freshwater and saltwater game fish. The DVD in this package gets you tying tube flies right away. The kit includes an HMH tube fly DVD, starter tube fly tool, stainless pins for the tube tool, poly tubes meant for cold conditions, rigid plastic tubes for deer hair and other materials that require heavy tying pressure, micro tubing, hook holder tubing, aluminum and copper tubes in a range of lengths, and custom and standard cone heads. Whoa, <laughs> it comes with everything. Check out www.hmhvices.com. The first time I saw a tarpon bite my fly, I, I almost went to the bathroom in my pants. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you see this huge mouth open, and they stick their head out of the water, and they actually, you know, when you finally get one stuck, they still go flying through the air, and they crash across the ocean. Their, their scales are rattling, you know, and it's just a thunderous explosion of, of fire. Yeah. Out of that beast because he he thinks he's going to die. Mm-hmm. I mean, Billy Pate said it best. He said, "You know, we're not talking about a two pound bluegill. We're talking about a two hundred pound tarpon that thinks he's going to die." And now you've got that big old hundred hundred and fifty pound fish hooked up with sixteen pound test and a fly rod. How do you control that beast? And unless you understand that animal, eventually you will. Yeah, you got them. You're going to get them. But initially, it's like, oh, my God, I, I'm, I'm connected to God somehow. If you had to take the top three things that you learned back then, what would they be? Obviously, Well, pulling. you know, uh, to be a successful tarpon fisherman, you absolutely have to have dexterity in your casting. And I taught this to my son. I said, Nikki, I don't care which direction the wind is blowing, which direction the boat, the boat is facing. You've got to get the flight of the fish right now. So he learned how to go to both sides of the boat with his forehand cast, a backhand cast, uh, low. You know how to how to flip the fly over, how to how to how to work the fly line. That is absolutely imperative. I have all these guys coming from the west that want to come fishing, and now I learned my lesson. I don't fish with anybody but my son because it's a waste of time. They they can't they can't get the fly to the fish, and and it's just so aggravating. Uh, so that's number one. Number two is. And there's dynamics of how to feed the fish, too. But number one, to be a successful tarpon fisherman, you have to understand how to get the flight of the fish. And secondly, how to hook that fish. And there's only one way you can hook a fish effectively and successfully. You need to keep stripping until you feel the weight of the fish on the end of your fly line. Are you speeding up your fly because technically a bait fish would speed up if it had a tarpon on its tail? I have, I have caught fish with a fly just sitting there you know, sinking. So it just depends on the fish, what it's doing. What are you looking for to well, determine that? Well, to, to get the bite, you want that fish to close the gap with your fly without stopping your fly. So it's, so a lot of times will people see a fish come up to bite their fly and they speed up their fly. They get all excited. They keep stripping faster and faster and faster and faster. It's like, no, no, let him eat it, you know? So allow that fish to close the gap to your fly. Okay. And then once he bites the fly, it's, it's almost impossible not to rip it out of his face because it's the, the visual is just so, you know, so crazy. But to get tight, if you go to the rod too early, all you're doing is bending the tip of your rod. The fly is not penetrating. The hook is not penetrating. So you're going to hook him, but he's going to jump out of the water and fall off the hook. Right. And that's what everybody says. I jumped six, I jumped this, I jumped that. And they don't catch them because they go to the rod too soon. But if you keep stripping until you feel the weight of the fish, now with your left hand or whichever stripping hand you have, you strip strike. The hand comes back, the rod is almost almost straight at the fish. And now when you put the butt of the rod up against your waist and hold that fish, when that fish shakes his head, that hook is getting embedded. It's almost like you're hand lining the bite. Do you give it another couple pulls? Yeah, I'll snug it up as long as the rod is slightly bent. Because if you have a real straight rod and you do that and the fish shakes his head going away, you're going to pop that tippet. So you want a slight bend. But the most important part of that whole hook set is having the weight in your stripping hand of the fish. And then you got to know how to pull. you got to know how to fight the fish. In your garage. Yeah. So when did you enter your first tournament? Oh, gosh, I can't remember what year it was, but it was probably... 
tw- almost 20 years ago, a little over 20 years ago. How did you do the first The year? first tournament I fished in was the Spring Bonefish Tournament okay. with Harry Spear. We got second in that tournament. Oh, and did? Then, and then in the Fall Fly Bonefish Tournament, we ended up winning that one. Did people know who you were at that point? Maybe as a skier. But not but as... Minimally. Not as a fisher. Not as an a... Angler. No. Yeah, because I, I just was new to it. But the fall bonefish tournament was back in the heyday when bonefishing was really extraordinarily good in the mm. Keys. So the very first fish I caught, you know, you have lines in at seven, lines out at three. We're watching these fish tail on, on Shell Key. So right at seven, I make my cast. We catch a 10-pound, 12-ounce bonefish. And we're pulling them off the flat to go get weighed because you got to go to the weigh master and weigh your fish. And Harry said, if this were a perfect world, we'd catch a 12-pounder before we get off this flat. I said, Harry, there's, there's two fish right over there tailing. And we pulled over there and caught a 13-pound, 12-ounce fish. No. So in the first 30 minutes of the tournament, we got a 10, 12, and a 13, 12 in the, in the, oh, in the bait well. So you won. And then we went over and caught six more. <laughs> okay. But that's when, but yeah, we ended up winning the tournament. And the last day I caught an 11-and-a-half-pound fish waiting. Did you get more points for that? No. No, it's all based on weight and okay. size. They must have started paying attention to you. Yeah, I mean, I won a lot. <laughs> and what was the word on the street? Who is this guy? Well, you know, I don't know. You have to ask the street, but I, <laughs> I knew what I could do. I won the Gold Cup five out of six years. Were people like, oh, it's the guy he's fishing with, or oh, it's because he's paying, putting the money out? Like, did I, you hit I've, any resentment in the before you were in the industry? No, I don't. Th- I don't think so. I think you get resentment that you're not as good as that guy, and they're they're winning all the time. You know, like a you know when somebody beats me, it's not a personal thing. It's like I I know I got to work harder, right? And um, you know, with all the tournaments I won, I've won fourteen with seven different guides. So it wasn't just a guide, you know, with an angler. And you look at a board, and you go, okay, I fear that angler, and I fear that guide over there. <laughs> But I really fear that angler with that guide, yes. that team, right. you know, because then you, there's power and you, you, you can, you have to bring something to the table as a guide and as an angler. And when you get that right combination, that's when you start winning stuff. Well, you are probably the most famous tarpon tournament angler I've ever heard of. Well, there, look, there are, I've won more tournaments than anyone, but we got to remember who the icons really are. You know, Stu Apt, Tom Evans, uh, Billy Pate, who, you know, these guys put tarpon fishing on the map. And they were over in Homosassa trying to catch a 200-pound fish on 16-pound test tippet. These were the guys that were breaking rods and refining technology, reels and rods and monofilaments and knots. And uh, the book I wrote, A Passion for Tarpon. Which is so beautiful, by the way. Well, thank you. It was not my story. It was a story of the fish. And I wanted people to understand the dynamics of Florida uh, tarpon fishing. And who were the guys who put tarpon fishing on the map? So as much as the guides and I have won, I really, you know, take, you know, I want to, you know, make, no, you know, give the celebrity status, if you will, to the real celebrities of the sport, which were those guys in that generation. Yeah. I mean, they were running, they only had like 25 horsepower engines, and they were going over the horizon, and nobody knew where Flamingo was from Isla Mirada. You know, and they were going to the Marquesas, and Lefty Lefty Cray broke down, and I think they were floating around out there for a day and a half. And so, you know, these are the guys that really put this sport and the adventure aspects and the side of the sport on the map. I mean, we've just uh, been able to be lucky enough to refine what they exposed. When did you enter the industry? I got into the industry, you know, when I started doing the fishing show. When I was offered that job to to go host, and we we ended up hosting eighty one shows from around the world. Over the four years? Seven years. We did seven years. I did oh, so they four signed years, on they for... signed another three years. Fantastic. Yeah. But we did some really great stuff. Uh, I fished with President Bush for about 20 years. We did a TV show in the Arctic Circle uh, with President 41. <laughs> what I, was when, that like? Traveling with President Bush, I mean, it's just like, you know, it's, un, it's unreal. I mean, you're traveling around with the most powerful man in the world. <laughs> yeah. And uh, he would call the house, and he'd always have the inflection, you know, with the tone, Andy? You know, it would always go up. <laughs> yeah. And uh, Patty Presog, his assistant from the White House, would always call in advance for him. And he'd get on the phone, and he'd say, Andy, what are you doing two weeks from tomorrow? I said, where are we going? Because I always knew he wanted to go fishing somewhere. 
And, um, you know, we went, uh, one time he picked me up, we went over and he had to speak with Billy Graham at one of his crusades. And then we went over Bonita fishing in North Carolina and then we went to the Keys bone fishing and he came, we flew back and he dropped me off in Boak and we're flying back and he's sitting next to me on a private plane. I slapped him on the leg real hard. I went, I like traveling with you. <laughs> Do you, you know, still fish with him? Every, no, he's in a wheelchair. <laughs> oh, no. Okay. Yeah. Oh, is this the senior bush? Senior bush, yeah. Oh, okay, 41. gotcha. And um, he came to me when he was about 80. And he said, hey, Andy, you think you can help catch an old man, a big old tarpon? And oh. I knew it was a bucket list wish for him. And we went to the Keys, and he ended up catching about 140-pound tarpon. And, and, and he was like, he was like tearful. He was so excited yeah. to catch this big old fish. But one of the, I got a great story for you in that. It's just so outlandish, I got to tell you. <laughs> yeah. So my ex-wife, Chrissy, uh, Margaret Thatcher's daughter co-wrote one of Chrissy's biographies. So when we would go to Wimbledon, we would go over to 10 Downing Street and, and have dinner with Margaret Thatcher. That is it's just the coolest thing in the whole world. Yeah. And so they, Margaret Thatcher and President Bush were giving a speech in Aspen the year Kuwait was invaded. Uh. So President Bush calls, Andy, what are you doing two weeks from tomorrow? What do you got going? I said, well, I've got to be in, in Aspen with Maggie and we're giving a speech and I'd like to have you and Chrissy come over for dinner down at the ranch where we're staying. I said, well, of course. Calls back five minutes later. What, uh, what are you doing for the weekend? I said, well, what do you want to do? He said, let's jump on Air Force One. We'll fly back to Washington, jump on the helicopter, and we'll go to Camp David for the weekend. Sign me up, you know? <laughs> so the following two weeks, Chrissy and I are flying back to Aspen on a private plane. We were up there doing an event, and we get a call mid-flight from the White House saying that Kuwait's been invaded. President Bush cannot spend the night in Aspen, but he's invited us to turn the plane around, go to Washington. Washington will pick us up, and he still wants to go to Camp David for the weekend. So the next morning, we're in the, you know, the Lincoln room. We get to sleep in the Lincoln room. The White House picked us up. I mean, this is like pinch me kind of stuff. So you know? cool. Uh, the next morning at about 10, you could hear President Bush walking down the, you know, the president's quarters. You know, Andy, Chrissy, where are you? And he comes in. He said, hey, we got some stuff going on, you know, over in Kuwait. Come down to the press conference at 3. And after we talk, you know, about what's going on, we'll jump in the helicopter and go. And they had a mini summit. Uh, we went. It was a Friday. And we went over to Camp David, and there was a there was a mini summit on that Saturday, and then that Sunday morning there was a small knock on the door, and you have all these small cabins at Camp David, and the main cabin is the Aspen cabin where the president and the first lady live, so he'd come to our cabin early that Sunday morning. He's an early riser, and knocked on the door, and it cracks open. Here's the president's face. He goes, I can't sleep. You want to go shoot some skeet? You know, I said, of course. So we're out shooting <laughs> shotguns now, you know. And we go to breakfast, and it's Doro and I and President Bush. And he never liked to talk shop, and I didn't. We never talked politics. We talked about sports and all the things we were doing. He loved he loved fishing and hanging with the guys. And but I had to ask him. I said, What is your biggest fear with Kuwait? And he looked at me. He said, My biggest fear is we're going to go to war. He said, we need to get him out of Kuwait, but if we do this, we're going to do it right, and it's not going to take very long. And I'm thinking to myself, oh, my God, the most powerful man in the world just informed me that we're going to probably go to war, and and nobody knows this. What were you thinking? I I was stunned. I wasn't. I was in shock. And then, obviously, then the back end of it, uh, because then he followed it up. He said, Saddam Hussein is a guy you can't talk to or negotiate with. And we got to remove them from, from Kuwait. And that war took 44 days. That is so surreal. Looking back now, do you look at your life and go, like, did that really happen? There's so many, so many tangents that are so out of, out of the norm. You know, with the skiing and, you know, my life with, with Chrissy, you know, fishing with the president, you know, for 20 years, bow hunting. I mean, I'm just the most fortunate guy on the planet. I, I wake up and do everything I want to do on a daily basis. Did it all come to a screeching halt? And I hate to, I'm not going to dig too much into your life, even though that's what I do on the show here. Right. Um, did it, I mean, when it came to a screeching halt with your divorce, did you fall off your feet? Did you get back up? Oh, what no, was your... it, was, it was terrible. I was depressed and, you know, it took about, it's still tanky time. I mean, you're never the same. But are you back now? Yeah, like, I think so. Like for the so. most part? Yeah. I mean, you bro- broken hearts hurt and uh you know with this woman i had three kids yeah and uh you know I, I talked to her probably at least two or three times a week we raise our kids uh differently 
but she's still a great friend of mine. But your when your whole life is based on raising kids and the family, um, that whole foundation, you know, over twenty one years, all of a sudden you wake up and you you don't know you don't even know how to breathe. Yeah, I ask because it just seems like such a common thing that happens with people in fishing. I don't know if Look, it's, it's just okay. that divorce is you know, normal in the world. You know, I think it's okay if two people grow apart and divorce is common, but I never thought that that was going to even be a possibility. And then the, you know, I don't want to get into this, but what was a magnifying thing uh, was that it was with a guy that broke up our family that was one of my best friends at the time. He was one of my new best friends. And um, so it was really hard. Yeah. It took forever. I mean, seriously, it was really bad. And how long ago? I'm just trying to get your timeline. How probably long? Ago a little, was that? Probably like 12 years ago or so. Okay. All right. So yeah. then, so then from there, so you have that moment. Your whole life changes. What do you decide you're going to do with yourself? Did you just did you not go out? I for went. Three years? I went into a dark hole and cried. You did. Yeah. And then when did you pull, call, crawl out of it? <laughs> I still got No, I'm all good now. But it just takes a long time. You know, there's no time frame. You just wake up and you say to yourself, "I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired." Yep. And then you just go start doing stuff. And, if, and I remember initially, right after my divorce, I'd be tarpon fishing, and I and I was crying. Yeah. I, I couldn't stop crying. I said, "I, I got to go home." And they take me to the dock at eleven o'clock in the morning. I'd go home and crawl into a room and and stay there for another four months. Did fishing and hunting help though? No. Oh, it didn't. Nothing helped. Damn it, Andy! That's the angle <laughs> I was going for here because I know so many of my guy friends go through divorce and they crawl into those holes. And well, I'm always like, you got to go hunting and fishing. You to know get what? Back. I think it's different for everybody. Like my therapist kept saying, "Go find Andy. Go find Andy again. Go be Andy." And um, and I get what she was trying to say, but Andy was not independent of his wife and his kids. I didn't have Andy to go to because Andy had evolved into this family. So I had to restructure my my whole foundation of me. And now it's uh, I'm great, you know. And and it's almost like, you know, you become very cautious with your heart. Are you remarried? I, I was remarried briefly. Okay, just looking at but your left. The, my the, my wedding ring I have here is not a wedding ring. It's okay. just a cool ring. Okay, and that's the only finger it fits on. <laughs> okay. Check it out. It's a, it's an Indian. It's an antique Indian um, headdress. Andy, you can't wear chief. that if you're going to find a new woman. You can't have a ring on that. Finger. I don't want to find a new woman. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I just like my ring. Okay. <laughs> but I saw this antique ring uh, at a store, and I thought. That's the chief. I'm the chief of my family. So I bought that and put it on and never took it off again. Okay. All right. Oh, I'm happy. I am happy yeah. I asked. I had a moment yeah. of shit. I shouldn't have asked. <laughs> you know what? I'm happy I you asked. know what? But I think so true. Uh, it is so true. If you can go out and get out of your, your, your dark place, whatever it takes you to get removed, yes, go on, up on top of a mountain, go get on a motorcycle. Don't jump off of it. Just yeah. go up just, to it. <laughs> yeah. Just, just go do that. It didn't help me. Okay. Time helped me. Okay. It just took a lot of time and a lot of therapy. But the therapy over a period of time is like, I know what she's going to say. I know what I'm going to say. And I, and I don't, don't want to go here anymore. It's just I just knew it was going to take, take a while. Okay. So you had your show for seven years. How did that all end? Well, after 9-11, my kids were at the point where I needed to be home. They were racing motorcycles. My time it was more... The show took up time, but it wasn't like too much. But the money, I think from the network side, it was starting to get a little bit tough to raise the money for the show. Big time, and, yeah. And I didn't, I didn't want to be on the road anymore. And after 40 years of traveling, I, you know, I was ready to just go fishing and hang out with my kids. Yeah. So is that what you did? Did you retire, essentially? Yeah. And then how did the Hardy thing come to be? Or was that part of the oh, show? Oh, well, Hardy, um, you know, I don't even really consider my work with Maui Jim and Hardy work in that, you know, I'm fishing anyway. I just, you know, consult with the with Howard Crossan, the main rod designer, and they came to me after I'd won a bunch of tournaments, and they wanted to make a move into the saltwater world, and they wanted me to take a look at what they had and if I could help them design, you know, a saltwater product. I said, "Give me what you have," and I took it out and I showed them why it was horrible, and we started building great product with great resins, you know, and the Centric stuff, and it's really we have an unbelievable product. You are the reason. The only reason why I will fish Hardy today. I'll fish Old Hardy, but when all that take over and they sold a company and everything was being made overseas, that was it for me. I stopped fishing Hardy. I found out you were on board and I started again. And I love my Hardy stuff. Well, it's, you know, if you take a look at it, 
most people go to a, a casting pond and they want to see how far they can cast a rod. So typically that rod tip is too stiff for it to be a great fishing rod. Yeah. Yeah, it's a long casting rod. But late in the day, low sun, when you've got a tarpon 30, 40 feet from the boat, and you, have, you need to turn over a 15-foot leader, if that rod tip is too stiff, you can't generate enough you know, weight to bend that rod tip to get the fly there. So the rod tip needs to have a little bit of a bend in it. Now, it needs to have feel. Rods that cast real far, rods that are too stiff, are great for launching stuff. But sometimes, and most times, they're not great fishing fishing tools. And that's what I basically, you know, work with with Hardy, you know, as far as the flex of a rod, the castability of a rod, and the reels too, you know, how to fight fish. Most people think a real big arbor reels for collecting line when you're chasing fish down, and, and rightfully true. But it's they really are great when you're fighting big fish. So if you're lifting a big fish in the water column, it takes a lot to, to gain line and lift that rod. So now when you crank down and pick up that line, you've got to go as fast as you can to hold that fish's head. And that larger arbor, the real big arbor, you, can, you lower the rod as fast as you can and you crank as fast as you can. And that way the fish can't get realigned and sink back into the water column. So those big arbor reels are really good if, when, when you're fighting fish correctly. Okay. And most people, they lift the rod and they have smaller reels. And it takes like so many revolutions to gain line and they do it slowly. So once you hook a big fish, it's like a boxing match. You have to jab and poke and pull. <laughs> yeah. And sometimes it's a bigger stroke, sometimes it's, it's short strokes. But that reel, if you can't collect line fast... You can only be as fast as that reel is. That's why I personally like the larger arbor reels is for fighting fish. Which hand do you reel with? Well, what what are you? Are you right-handed? I right-hand reel because it's my fastest, and I cast right-handed. Okay, so you switch hands. Mm -hmm. No problem there? Zero problem. What about the argument? I mean, you hear everyone's got an opinion on it. Is it just a preference thing? I have always fought fish pulling with my left arm and, and reeling with my right because I want to be fast. Is it because you're also using your body for most of the pulling? Well, you can use your body, whether you're right or left-handed casting or reeling. You know, it's just a matter of, of how fast you can do it and where, where uh, the best dexterity is that you have. I, th- I think maybe ideally, if you cast right-handed, pull right-handed, reel left-handed, you know, that makes, that makes a lot of sense. But here, too, if you're casting right-handed and you've got to clear the fly line, and the fly line starts jumping up and you're reeling left-handed, the reel handle's on the left side of the reel. So now it's more exposed to picking up that fly line. Ah, uh, okay. So when you cast and you go to clear a fish or clear the fly line, if I just rotate my arm and that reel handle's up against my forearm, that fly line comes off the deck of the boat and goes right on out to the fish. Oh, smooth, because that's the last thing you want to be focused on. Is yeah, because now if you have a left-hand reel, I mean, that's the argument there. That fly line can catch that handle. What about jumping tarpon? You know what? I never give total slack to a fish. You know, when that fish jumps out of the water, I, I'll, I'll lay the fish down, if you will. I'll, I'll give the fish my rod tip, but I won't give it to him fully because okay. I don't want to throw any slack. I don't want that fly falling out of the hole. Because that's exactly and, what you're doing. You're making a hole in its mouth, right? Yes. Yeah. And if you give total slack, especially late in the fight, and a lot of times the, the jump is so lethargic next to the boat, the fish uh-huh. just sticks its head out of the water and kind of shakes it very slowly. And if you give a lot of slack, it gives that fly a chance to fall out. Yeah. I'm just bowing a little bit because, you know, the worst thing, too, is to fight fish with a heavy drag on your reel. I was going to ask you about that because with marlin fishing, you know, the first thing you do is you lay off your drag because you want to use the water drag tension. In, yes, drag in the water. Yeah. I create tension and, and drag by, by holding the fly line, but you have to know when to let go. When do you let go? When you, <laughs> that's what you have to learn when, by fishing. <laughs> when they start really pulling, you know, you're not, if you hang on, you're going you're gonna to break your tippet. You got to let go. But the thing is, I fish with maybe two to three pounds of drag on my reel. No kidding. That light. Because when they first jump out of the water right away, if you have a lot of resistance, they're pulling. You can pull hooks. Mm-hmm. And if they fall on, your, on the tippet, they can break your tippet. 
So I use very two to three pounds of drag on my reel. You know those guys who are always like, oh, I went out, like you mentioned earlier, you know, I jumped six tarpon. For you, is it about jumping the fish or is it about getting it to hand? It's about taking the fly out of its face. Okay. <laughs> I don't consider a fish caught until you take the fly out of its see, face. I, I want it. I don't know if it's like the hunter in me, but I want it in my hand. You know why a lot of people say that? Because they can't catch them. Okay. <laughs> Got it. I think they probably would like to be able to do that, but they don't know how to pull. And they say, I don't want to spend an hour. Well, you shouldn't have to spend an hour. If you know how to pull on fish, a, a real big fish might take 45 minutes, 30 to 45. You know, a big 120-pound fish, that's mean. But usually even real big 150-pound fish, sometimes you catch those in 10, 15 minutes. Right. But it's a matter of understanding the dynamics of, of knowing how to pull. Are there some fish that are just meaner than others? Yeah, oh, yeah. Can you tell when you're casting to the fish? Like, do you cast to the lead fish, or are you casting one behind? I'm always trying to find like a lighter color fish, like on the like a, on the ocean. You'll see a fish and a string of fish, and sometimes you'll see a brown backed fish. Okay. And the others are all dark. I try to get my fly to the bar, the brown backed fish. Why? They they bite the fly better. I think I used to. I I really have never known, but I I think I understand why now. Because in the island Marauder area, you've got a lot of backcountry fish. So those fish are back in some tannic water. And they look more golden, lighter in color. And those fish always have been easier to catch. The mudfish, fish in the backcountry. And I think it's one of those fish that found its way to the ocean is now migrating down the ocean side with some ocean swimmers. Oh, my goodness. Okay. And that's a fish that has moved from an area where they're easy to catch that's their DNA back there. And they're lighter in color because of the water color. Why would their DNA be easier to catch? I'm not really sure. I think the ocean fish, you know, they're, they're athletes, they're traveling fish, they're smart, they're in clear water, they get a lot of flies thrown at them. So I think they, they've had their, their guard up a little bit more. The backcountry fish, I don't know why they're easier, but if you find some fish in the mud back there, they're pretty easy to catch. Do you think tarpon are smarter than we give them credit for? I think they're dumber. You can credit for because they want to be caught. What you think that tarpon want to be caught? Tarpon want to be caught. Why? Look, you don't see a permit hanging out at a dock eating scraps. You don't see a bonefish (laughs) at a dock eating scraps, right? No, not not typically. No. So big tarpon are scrap eaters. I think they're kind of lazy. They're bothered by the north wind. They're bothered by cold weather. They're pretty persnickety, but they're lazy and they want to be fed. They're oh, like, okay. They're like they're like big fat dogs. <laughs> okay, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. And if you know if you know how to feed them, you're gonna you're gonna catch them. Talk to me about flies. I understand that you introduced or you really started fishing smaller flies than what they used to. So hooks, uh, hooks. Okay. Yeah, because what was happening, we were using mostly twos and three o hooks, and we were fishing for real big fish in clear water. And uh, I showed up one year. With Timmy Hoover, he was the guy that I used in the Gold Cup, and I had these little one o hooks tied up on owner Rockies. And Timmy started laughing at me, and he said something like, "What do you think we're going to do? Go dry fly fishing today or something?" You know? <laughs> okay. I remember him saying something about dry fly fishing. I said, "Timmy, we just have to kind of take a look at this. I, I think I think there's something to this because a smaller hook, you're going to be able to get the bait to the to the fish better." Your fly is smaller. You can use the current to get it there. It doesn't land as hard. And when you set the hook, that smaller diameter, uh, the width of that gauge is going to penetrate. So now you're trying to stick a fish with a hypothermic needle. Now it's a question of whether or not that hook's going to be strong enough to catch these fish. Mm-hmm. And we caught a lot of big fish right away with this little one o hook. And I started using smaller hooks and using the current to get the flight of the fish more than a lot of other guys sooner. What do you mean using the current? Well, if you see a fish laying there. Oh, you're talking about that fish. How to feed that fish. Okay. So you got a big fish laying there and it's laying into the current. And let's just say it's down in the water column, say maybe five feet or six feet. Most people make the mistake of they, they cast the fly to the fish. The current's going to swing it downstream. So we need to intercept the fish with the fly. It's like bird shooting. Sounds like swinging flies to me. It is. It's exactly right. So now you got to get the lead, let the current get the fly down to the fish. Are you mending and stuff and all this? Yeah, yeah. You could mend, you know, it, it, whatever it, it takes. You know, sometimes the, the belly gets deep enough and you can't mend that belly. 
but you can get it down and you when you get to fly to swing you don't allow the belly you know you kind of get up up uh current of that fish so the fly line when you throw it is not actually perpendicular to the fish so you don't get the big belly mm-hmm. but it's kind of angled so the sweep of the fly is going to be with with the leader and the fly first this is so cool to hear that you do this oh yeah and uh i was doing it in the keys uh recently we had these big fish laid up in this area and i had a guide friend of mine and he said i always heard you know how to catch these fish i said i'll show you <laughs> And and it's a revelation in that we were using like big twenty and thirty foot leads, and and you can see like a green chartreuse you know toad fly. You can see it in the water, mm-hmm. and you can see the fish way over here, and you can see the fly way over here, and you just start swinging and swinging and working and working, and the fish like he'll kind of move away from it, but you can see him looking out of the corner of his eye, and you see him swing around and come over and sip it. Are you using intermediate lines? I use. Uh, I use mostly the all-clear crystal. It's an all-clear fly line. But I also, too, use a um, the ghost tip Cortland, which has got a nine-foot intermediate tip on it. But it's a very slow-sinking intermediate tip. So with a 15-foot leader and a nine-foot you know, clear tip, you've got 24 feet of clear. So it's almost like fishing an all-clear fly line. If you have a 12-foot leader and they can see your bright fly line, do you think that they care? Or is it yeah, If they see it, yeah, for sure. Okay, so they are still really yeah. spooky. But most of the fish I, I like to fish for are traveling fish on the ocean. You know, coming down the sandbar. If you can catch those sensitive fish, you can catch a tarpon anywhere in the world. Do you like fishing for steelhead? I know you've done I it. I hate it. I didn't want to be the one oh to say it, but my. Jimmy said that you hated it. I hated it. Why? Why? Oh, my God. <laughs> it's like going into a closet and casting. <laughs> oh, that's so blind fishing. Well, there's no, well, you guys can hunt because you know the current, you know where the fish are. I like seeing the animal. Okay, <laughs> and you know, so it's a matter a matter of like all this casting. We we fished for like a week, and we caught like two of these twelve pound fish. It's like no, it was raining the whole time, and it was cold, and it was like you know, it's like there's, there was not enough profanity to cover my my feelings. What if you could have seen them? Like, have you fished New Zealand? I have not. But yeah, if you can see the fish, you know, then that that really helps. It's the hunting thing. But it I'm really not. Is. Look, I I won't even go blind cast for tarpon, and they're a hundred pounds. Yeah. You know, once in a while, you know, early in the morning they're blooping. You don't really see the fish, and you can cast. Yes, you can get them. But for me, being a, spe- a steelhead guy, I think maybe if it was better fishing and I could catch them, you know, <laughs> right. I'd be in. But I'm not that guy. You know, I mean. That's pretty hard stuff that what you do. Well, you know what? I've got to be totally honest with you. I mean, the more I travel and the more I saltwater fish and fish New Zealand and hunt, it's about the hunt for me. It always has been. Right. Well, it's, it's about the water for me, firstly. But secondly, it's about hunting. Like I was talking about this yesterday. For me, it's not about catching the fish, but I need to know they're there. Right. I need to see them. Right. So, yeah. And, you know, I'm, I'm having a harder time these days with the blind fishing as well. So you're gravitating to more of a, of a visual well, even if I'm dry fly fishing, at least that I can see my fly. I can see if something looks at it. You right, know what I mean? I need right. to, but I, I need to see. Can, it. You need a connection. Yeah, yeah, for sure. See, even when I nymph fish, I, I wait until I see a fish, and then I nymph fish to that fish. Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm kind of there at this point. At it's that it's point. not. I, I can't walk a river and just blind cast all the time. You know, once in a while. But I would rather just take my time, go real slow, look for that one fish, right, and catch catch that one. There are steelhead fisheries you can do that, but they're few and far between. Yeah, I would think. So, what's next for you, Andy? Oh, I don't know. You know, um, I, I just I want to kill a big old elk in September. Yeah. You know, uh, that's you know, as far as what I do, I'm at the stage now that I just I know at 65, and being having all the operations I've had, I've got a pretty beat up body. I want to be able to really enjoy um, what I do with my son. Uh, as long as I can, because I know that I'm not going to be able to backpack in and kill elk and haul the meat out much longer. Um, you know, the tarpon fishing, you can do it until you're, you're quite old, but I love pulling my boat. So I'm just really focusing now on trying to get in better shape uh, so that I can, you know, do the things that I love to do at a great level. Any more yeah. books on the horizon? No. 
No, because, you know, I think the Tarpon book was really sought after by Tom Perro. He came to me mm-hmm. for like two years, and that's when I was going through my divorce. I knew I needed something to get out of that hole. So writing that book really, really kind of uh, did that. Oh. Um, and I'm not a book writer, so I think one's enough. It took I, me five years. I can't even imagine. It I, is I, a beautiful and I, book. And I don't though. type. I, I wrote that whole book on a legal pad and a, and a, pen, and a pen. Oh, no kidding. Seriously. Wow. All right. So we'll just watch out for you. Any more tournaments? No, I, you know, I just, what happened, I got out of tournaments because it was just, I, I hated them to, at the end. Why? Well, you work so hard and you're, you know, you're really, really good. And if you don't win, it was just aggravating as hell. Oh. And I wasn't enjoying the sunrises. I wasn't enjoying the fishing itself. I wasn't, you know, you hook a big old fish and he falls off the hook. That should be fun. Why weren't you enjoying it? Because I, I, it was all about the win. It would be Wednesday and Thursday in a five-day tournament, and I would, I would be winning, and I'd be hating life, and it would be all grinding. Yeah, and, that would just strip and, it for me. Yeah, and, it, and it's like, what do I have to prove? And I got out of it for about four years, and then Robbie Fordyce asked me to fish a tournament with him, and we won the Golden Fly after having not fished for about four years, and then I went right back into retirement. Yeah, so and, it didn't stimulate you again? It, it was over after well, that? Well, yeah, you know, it, because it, it take, it's, it's expensive. you got to fish a lot to be really good and on your game. And at this point, it's, I would rather just be down there with my son and not worry about trying to do something I've already done. Yeah. And you have nothing more to prove. So it was like, let's just move on from that. Yeah, well, I'm going to leave you at that because it sounds, I, like I get it, you've got your family and you've got you found bow hunting. Yeah. What else do you really need? No, a good book on a rainy day yes. and a tent that doesn't leak. <laughs> and that concludes this episode of Anchored. Be sure to tune in next week as I sit down with Brian Niska in Terrace, British Columbia. The delicious ice-cold taste of Dr. Pepper has a lasting effect on people. Lindsay from Sacramento said, Pro tip, 40 degrees is the perfect temperature for an ice-cold Dr. Pepper. Why is 40 degrees the perfect temperature for Dr. Pepper? We brought in Sue from Duluth, Minnesota to tell us. Oh, yeah, I know a thing or two about cold. Oh, that right there is the perfect kind of ice-cold for Dr. Pepper. Mm, I'd share that with my friend Nancy. She likes Dr. Pepper, too, you know. My cold All right, that'll be all, Sue. Having a perfect temperature for your Dr. Pepper, it's a pepper thing. Inspired by real fan posts. Brave anglers search for the one they call king, but who will take his throne? Tune in to Waypoint TV's Battle for Silver, Saturday, May 18th from 12 to 6 p.m. Eastern. Presented by Abyss Battery. Waypoint TV.